Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hi, Holly. How are you? I am okay. Nursing a headache, but um, taking some Excedrin, so we'll see <laughs> if I can manage to find my words during this recording. How about you? You doing okay? I'm, I'm doing fine. I found out yesterday that in your head, you have no nerves. Your brain has no nerves except in the covering of the brain, and that's where we get headaches when there's either caused by muscular tension or something like that, except, of course, for for, um, migraine headaches. And those Mm. are an entirely different category. They are bees. Because I talked yesterday with somebody who had brain surgery, and they said, you know, they they keep you awake during brain surgery so that they can talk to you. So that they can see what areas of the brain are still functioning. When when my wife, uh, Dr. Siri Beeman, had deep brain stimulation surgery Mm -hmm. last year, uh, earlier this year, uh, she was awake during it, Mm -hmm. and um, the doctor wanted her to move her limbs and Mm -hmm. things during that surgery, so it was interesting. Anyway, I hope you get over your headache. Thanks. So... um, I announced Sunday in class, and I don't know um, if this caught you off guard mm-hmm. or not, that uh, this Sunday, the title that I'm giving to what we're going to talk about is the future of faith. As you have so famously said about your friend and colleague, Holly, I am no longer surprised by anything you say. You always keep me on my toes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, we are in this, doing this deep dive in the Gospel of John. I was thinking about that this morning because I hope to have some time today to to write. The gods align all everything correctly. I will will be able to do that. I was thinking... um, I hope that people are finding this as interesting and um, even exciting and growth producing as I am finding it for myself. Um, I certainly don't want to turn anybody off by saying, oh, we're studying the Gospel of John because they're studying the Gospel of John in a context that uh, is potentially as bleak as any time I can remember in my lifetime. Mm in this country. And I know that you say that we, there's always light and there is, there are always reasons to be thankful and there are, uh, but we, we are facing, um, we're on the precipice of moving into an era of authoritarianism. And it's possible, Bill, you know, one of the things about the dark as we are, you know, kind of exploring in this passage of the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus is that that we so often we work very hard to avoid the dark. And it is through the dark that the light is revealed, 
right? It is what Catherine Keller, who I just love her as a theologian, and she has a whole entire book dedicated to Tihomic or theology of the dark. And and, and her Mm -hmm. whole thing is, do not be afraid. You know, this, this darkness is the, the, also the creative fathomless abyss. Um, It's always creating, it's always producing, it's always at work. And the more we are in avoidance of the dark, that we're doing a spiritual bypass, right? I think, you know, I was thinking about this and I wonder if we can sort of play on this a little bit, we, we, we seem to be sort of addicted to, to darkness, like authoritarianism, um, um, extremism, fundamentalism. But I actually wonder if it isn't that we're addicted to the light and we refuse to deal with the dark. Well, let's argue about this. Okay, present <laughs> your case. Let's have a conversation about this. Uh, in, in the passage that we're looking at in John, this is the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the lines attributed to Jesus in that conversation is that people love mm-hmm. the dark. And I had a conversation with a colleague yesterday. He said that people love the dark because it's easier. Mm. It gives them comfort. It gives them mm-hmm. assurance. And I have read and talked about Brian McLaren. I've read and talked about John Meacham. And those are only two of the voices mm-hmm. that um, are saying that we in this country are in a time that what that is analogous to exactly what Germany was going through that led up mm-hmm. to Hitler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty oh, scary. Oh, it's to terrifying. Me. And any respectable historian who's identifying sort of the threads of and pathways towards fascism is identifying these threads correctly. We think right. that we have these stop gaps in place to prevent that from happening as Americans. I think the average American thinks that. Um, and that's where I kind of go, we're going, yeah, but yeah, we don't, it's not really going that way. That's what I, what I say, we're kind of refusing to deal with this darkness over here. And we're going, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's, our country can't let that happen. That's not who we are. So we have this artificial relationship maybe to the light. And we have, what I want to say is our darkness is denial. We're, we're in it. Like we're in the darkness because we're in denial of it, Right. And right. we're over here trying to grasp at the light without actually looking at what's behind us or what's surrounding us. And I, I just think that that is probably the most dangerous place we could be. And I think that that is very specific also to a kind of any, any population of people. And in our country, it happens to be mostly white people who have kind of owned the power tend to not want to look at the dark because of the fear of losing that power, the fear of losing position. Um, I, I, you know, I've told you several times this week, I've been thinking a lot about Plato's allegory of the cave. Yes, yes. Uh, tell people who are not familiar with that, tell that story. Uh, okay, okay. Well, I'll talk a little bit about it on Sunday too, um, but the allegory of the cave is about a group of prisoners who um, live in a cave. 
they're 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 bound together, shackled together um, on a bench, and behind them that which they can't turn and see is a fire, and behind and between them and the fire are puppeteers, who are casting shadows onto the wall that the prisoners can look at, and so to the prisoners these shadows are reality, right? They basically are watching a shadow puppet theater all day, and it's playing out before them, and to the prisoners this is what their reality is. They think that that's real, that's life, that's all there is. Um, one prisoner gets a little glimpse of like a shard of light coming in through the cave and somehow frees himself to follow that shard of light. And um, as Socrates would put it, gets sort of like hurled up by someone else into the bright light of the day. And the prisoner is mad about it. Like, I can't handle this bright light. I don't know what to do with this bright light. It's, it's overwhelming, it's terrifying, but the person who has pulled him up out of the darkness is saying, deal with it, you're in the light. So the prisoner starts to become curious about the light. Oh, I see all of these other things. There's so much more to reality than I thought there was. It's not just the shadows on the wall. And so the prisoner then returns to the cave and tries to tell the other prisoners about what he's seen and he's killed. So he try, try, so he kind of, as Socrates says it, he had sort of two choices to return to the other prisoners and tell them about it and say, follow me, or to return to the other prisoners and adapt back to the darkness of the cave. Because seeing the light, so to speak, automatically casts you mm -hmm. as different, as, as, as other than, um, as maybe scary because you're saying something different than status quo. And it's gonna put you at odds with those who wanna stay in the dark and stay comfortable, stay, stay with what is. And um, that is the challenge we face, I think. I don't mean just you and me, but anyone who's kind of grasping at the light and saying, I want to bring this down to these prisoners runs the risk of being outcasts. From, the, from our familiar, mm -hmm. from what we know. And so where do we, you know what? So there is a risk to being in the light. There's also, as we know, a huge risk to staying in the, committed to the dark. Uh, so I, I will hope to elaborate on this on Sunday, but uh, a parallel that I see go between the time that the this document was created <clears throat> and now is that the Johannine community, which, uh, Really, I think it's a term that was coined by the biblical scholar uh, Raymond Brown. I think he is the one mm -hmm. who first came up with this in biblical scholarship. They were um, being extruded and excluded from the prevailing religion of their day. They had a new vision of the teachings of Jesus that caused them to uh, be on the outside of what was the society of their time. And um, again, we live in a time where organized religion is on the decline in many ways and for many reasons. But the organized religion that you and I have been familiar with in the United States has from the beginning bought into the empire's message. And it's been so co-opted 
that the, the message of the light is very difficult to get out because we use these labels like liberal and conservative and right wing, left wing and all that. And I think that's hurt us tremendously. And uh, mm -hmm. Brian McLaren, <clears throat> I know I'm drifting a field here, but Brian McLaren says <clears throat> that one of the ways that we can deal with what's going on in American culture is to give up the labels that we have been using and use some, mm -hmm. some more truthful and more useful labels. And the label that he's suggesting for the current division in American politics is those who want and support a democracy and those who want and support authoritarianism. They're different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, democracy, I, I love what um, both bell hooks um, and I believe Alice Walker also say about democracy is that it must constantly be challenged, wrestled with and evolved. That's what makes it a democracy with a small D, right, is this constant willingness to engage with it. Um, it doesn't mean conservative or liberal. It doesn't mean progressive or traditional. It means a constant willingness to engage and a constant willingness to sort of push forward toward a system that works for the most people most of the time. Um, and authoritarianism is the exact right. opposite. It's wanting, that, it's wanting that single charismatic voice to tell us what to do. So what I hope to elaborate on Sunday, and I haven't written it, but what does it mean in this mm -hmm. story of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus says, People love the darkness more than the light. I'm all, I want to elaborate on that. And you can talk about Plato's mm -hmm. taste, and we'll try not mm -hmm. to get ourselves killed by bringing the light in. <laughs> yeah, well, you just bring your, your really powerful flashlight and we'll just shine it on everybody. And, <laughs> and they'll all, I mean, but it's a good analogy, right? Just the... Um, the eyes must adjust to both the darkness and the light. You know, if you've ever been in utter darkness, um, eventually your senses adjust to it, right? Where you can, you, your, your hearing is heightened, your touch is heightened. Even you can begin to sort of distinguish between shadows and, and reality or shadows and objects. Um, and, and in the light, there's an adjustment period too. You know, I was watching my son yesterday in the car and and that was a really bright afternoon as we were driving home from school. Um, and he just kept rubbing his eyes and rubbing his eyes and trying to find a way to block the sun out. But it was in that perfect position between the visor, <laughs> you know, where you can't quite block it out. Um, the light is hard to adjust to, too. It hurts our eyes. It, it, it's, it, it, it makes us sensitive. It makes us have to look away at times. And so I think that that adjustment period is one that we need to be tender with ourselves and with others too. It's like, what, what is it that's, that's hurting us about looking into the light? And it's hard for me sometimes to be tender toward the kind of um, voice of not yet, not yet, I'm not ready yet. But I know that I've also 
been that person and still am that person in other ways. I'm not ready yet. You know, I'm not ready to look into the light. So it's like trying to find that place of compassion for the not yet while still pulling people toward the light, which is not to say I have the light figured out. Yeah, I, um, my daughter recommended a series on uh, Hulu that we have been watching called Dope Sick. And uh, it is about how the opioid crisis really uh, just went off like a rocket ship because of the way Oxycontin was developed and promoted in in this country. So I think that last year we had something like 70,000 opioid deaths in this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. the reason that we have that is, yes, people abuse drugs, but also these drugs are highly addictive. And if they are prescribed in irresponsible ways, people end up needing more and more and more of them, which leads to all sorts of things. And the driver behind all of that was money. Yeah. Who pays the the bills generally has the one who has to say. Yeah. Um, So much to say about that, but that's a deeper, different conversation. Um, And, you know, I mean, I think that this, the sickness of addiction is a very real, tangible, visible sickness and we should treat it as such. And there is a part of addiction that is also committed to not wanting to be in reality, right? There's there, the, the addicted person is trying to avoid something and is self-protecting from that something through addiction. Um, and we all have an addiction to something that keeps us self-protected from something else. And of course those manifest in a variety of different ways and on a spectrum of um, manageable to not manageable. But um, what do you think about that? I feel like you probably know more about the science of addiction um, in terms of what it is self-protecting. I can see it compassionately when I can see that someone is um, trying to do self-care, albeit in a destructive way, because reality is just too hard. Well, I, I think that one of the things that, that Sanford says in his book on mystical Christianity is that moving into the light just takes a lot of work. It's hard. It's hard yeah. to face up to our own yeah. darkness. And um, mm-hmm. he would say, as a union analyst, that we, we, we move into the light by facing our own darkness. And uh, that's mm-hmm. what addiction mm-hmm. helps people to avoid is their own darkness. Yeah. And by proxy, yeah. their own light, right? So that is a perfect moment for me to read from okay. the favorite book, the book of secrets that is translations of Meister Eckhart. And it's, this one is called, Some Imagine There Is No Light. Some imagine there is no light in their life, but only a long darkness. 
I say that the light is never absent, always seeking to flow forth within the ground of the soul, but we block it in our confusion and fail to see how it ever shines and burns in us. So if you want to know the light, you must first face the darkness that is in you. Only then will this light overflow your soul and dance with radiance in your life. So it's the both andness of our own being, the lightness and the darkness in our it's own ironic being. that Michael Eckhart in his own lifetime was accused of heresy for preaching that sort of thing mm -hmm. by the mm -hmm. church. Mm-hmm because mm -hmm. their fear was that he would expose their own abuses. That's right. And also render the church slash institution unnecessary. If we can face this within ourselves, what does that say about the sort of powers and principalities, right? Are they unnecessary? And my thought is that if we are able to integrate the dark and light within, then our systems become healthier. You know, the, the ways that we do ritual, the ways that we do community, the ways that we do religion become healthier if more people are doing the inner work. Absolutely. So the, the title, The Future of Faith, I picked because where we are right now is struggling about institutional identity and institutional being, whether you're on the democratic side in the real democracy sense or whether you're on the authoritarian side. And um, mm -hmm. institutionalism came about because people in authority had a set of beliefs that they wanted to make sure got protected and propagated and taught correctly. And all of that grew out of an age of faith, which is what you see in the Gospel of John. It isn't about belief. Jesus never once is quoted anywhere in any of the scriptures as saying, believe in me. Mm -hmm. He just said, follow me. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. And, you know, wise religions over the course of human history have, have, have echoed the path of wisdom, you know, this, the path of, of follow me, the path of following, honestly, love for love's sake, right? I mean, unconditional love is really the, the, the end all be all of, of I think human um, divine experience, right? Can we turn and look at each other and see that each of us is both the product of light and dark and find those spaces in us that are, um, that are seeking, that are reaching, that are, that are wanting that something more out of life. But I, I think it's, as you said, it's like being in the dark is so comforting. I mean, I think about speaking of headaches, when you have a headache or a migraine, um, you just want to be in a dark room <laughs> under the covers, you know, <laughs> and, and light hurts. Um, so what is this sort of spiritual headache that is causing us to want to be in a dark room? Well, the, the journey that uh, the authentic journey is, is not one of belief. It's one of faith. And the journey mm -hmm. is a journey, mm -hmm. I think, into mystery, mysticism. Those are two very mm -hmm. connected words. 
It's a journey into yes. paradox and living comfortably with paradox and non-duality. And perhaps even more than those two things, it's a journey into the unknown. And mm-hmm. um, we live in a culture where the unknown is scary for a lot of people. A lot of people want certitude. And um, having the answer, knowing, quote, what the truth is and having facts that nobody else has, or as um, famously came out, we have alternative facts. Um, yeah. There are no, there are no alternative <laughs> yeah. facts. But um, real authentic spirituality, I think, helps people live comfortably with the unknown. And that's mm-hmm. tough. Yeah. It is tough. It's really tough. I mean, this, it, it is, that's the why a spiritual practice becomes so necessary is because it helps us return to that place of just presence, just being right here, right now, so that the unknown doesn't feel so big and unmanageable. Um, that's how I see it, right? It's just a reminder to return. Um, you know, there is, uh, yeah. I may have said this either in class or in an earlier podcast, but when I was in seminary and we were studying the Gospel of John, when we got to the Nicodemus story, the professor called called two people up. And we did this uh, the last Sunday we taught, not last Sunday, but two weeks ago. We did this. We read the parts of Jesus and Nicodemus, and you noticed that I made you be Jesus. Because at the Jesus is holy feminine, I, they, because I thought that was <laughs> typecasting, you know. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we didn't want the old white it, guy to be Jesus. It takes <laughs> less than three minutes to read the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Yeah. And so we know that it's a fabricated yeah. story. No other, nobody else is there taking notes or with a video camera recording it. And mm-hmm. so Nicodemus and, and um, you know, Bishop Shelby Spong says that this is a fabricated story, that Nicodemus is a fictional character representing Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. Judeans, which John translates as Jews, who um, should have, and Jesus says to him at the beginning of their dialogue, um, you as a religious leader should already have known this stuff. And mm-hmm. so there you see the indictment of the establishment on the part of, of right. John putting those words into Jesus. And I couldn't right. agree more because people are raised in an institution that they don't know much about. They don't know the origin of these stories. Yes. And we have not done our homework as we should have. I, and I blame the institution for not educating people about it. It shouldn't mm-hmm. come at, I mean, in all levels. Yeah, at all yeah. levels. Yeah. Yeah. In all levels of life, we're being asked, we're being told to not question. You know, this is everybody's hot button with critical race theory, which, by the way, is a misnomer. A critical race theory is a legal term. Um, talking about and teaching about diverse histories is not critical race theory, right? It's just, but what, what, what we're hearing from the people who are afraid of um, looking honestly at history is that we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we don't need to look backward. 
you know, <laughs> and I think that that's happening at all levels of, uh, we're seeing that fear play out in so many levels in education and in churches and in institutions and saying, don't look back at what we've done. Let's just, let's just move forward as to what we can do. But that's, you know, the present moment, I think is a combination of looking backward and looking forward. You know, Holly, constant, yeah. I know that some people might get irritated that either one or both of us keep returning to this theme over and over. But one of the great, great sins that is afflicting our country is white racism. And um, that's one of the reasons that people don't want to face the history. I was thinking, yeah. you know, you have an eight-year-old black kid with a gun, with a pretend gun, and he's a bad guy. You have somebody trying to pass, a black man trying to allegedly pass a $20 bill. He's a bad guy. I heard a story yesterday mm -hmm. about one of my black friends who was stopped in a car in Houston on Kirby with his daughter in the car, mm -hmm. pulled out of the car, made to put his hands on the hoods, dressed down, was never told while he was stopped. Then you have Kyle Rittenhouse with an AK-47, and he's a hero. Or he's poor guy. He's misunderstood. Yeah. And, and I think these public images are so troubling, and we absolutely should question them. Um, you know, Diana Butler-Bass, who was with us last weekend, talked about a lot about the image of birth, at least in the Sunday class, right? And this, this work, and I can't help but think this, is inherently feminine. And we've so heavily leaned on the masculine and the, I would say the sort of damaging masculine, the abuse of power rather than the, the, the soft use of power. Um, or I should say force instead of power. Power is can be solid, grounded, and, and standing in place, whereas force is a toxic masculine, right? And she talked about needing to birth something new. And this is where we are. We're in this, we're in these labor pains of birthing something new. And we don't yet know what's going to arrive. And it's that willingness to be in the painful moment in the unknown, in the dark, that is keeping us from from actually birthing the thing that needs to be born. So I feel like we're walking a tightrope. Okay. And the tightrope is, um, I don't want to fall. How, how, how do we talk about the future of faith and not fall into fear on the one side mm -hmm. where I want us to fall is onto the side of hope and possibility. Of course. And um, mm -hmm. that's, that can be a struggle at the present moment in our culture. Mm -hmm. Maybe the answer is we, we walk the tightrope. We, we be in the both and we go, it's gonna be wobbly and hard and difficult. And we're gonna lurch forward into one side or the other, but we stay on the tightrope. You know, Diana Butler Bass said that one of the things that we've absolutely got to learn how to do in this culture is talk to each other. Yeah, yeah, agree. I'd like to figure out a format where we could do that. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, we need a covenant with one another and we need a process that honors the covenant and the covenant should be grounded in love. 
right? It should be grounded in some sort of trust that um, we both want the same things. I heard it said that, you know, a feminist went to South America and said, you know, introduced all these women, single mothers of children and to feminism, and you got to ask for your rights and you got to demand equality. You need, you know, you need to rise up together. <laughs> this one mother in Spanish says, I don't care what you call it. I just want to be able to feed my baby and shit in the toilet, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of like, call it whatever you want, but our human needs, that human need for just having, being seen, having our needs met in a safe way is, is fundamental. And we've got to keep that at the center. I remember um, Harvey Cox, my professor at Harvard, saying, if you want to look at what is going to be the future of faith and the future of faith when it comes to the Christian religion, I'm not talking about Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or any of that, uh, look to the Latin American and African countries, because that is where the future of faith is being found in liberation theology. It's not had necessarily a smooth time either because those in authority want to shut down people who are talking about human rights and equality and democracy Mm -hmm. you're in charge Mm -hmm. you don't want anybody messing with your stuff no yeah well, you know, I mean, let's stay on the tightrope tight rope together. I'll hold the net for you if you hold it for me. <laughs> well, I think we are walking a tightrope. Um, and, um, yeah. I don't think either one of us has said publicly, except in this podcast, in class, that um, Nicodemus is a fictional figure. You want to draw that card? <laughs> I'll draw that card. Although our friend Sanford says he's possibly real, but the story is fictional, you know? Yeah. Well, the, they, yeah. I've used this line so many times, but that very professor that I was talking about seminary uh, about this very story said, Jesus taught in parables and his disciples taught in parables about Jesus. They were just that's they right. were just doing what he did by making up stories. And when yeah. Jesus did that, nobody stood around and say, said, hey, he's just making this stuff up or this didn't really happen. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. know it's a story exactly. with, I mean, with they, import. So yeah, they call. How do we how do we get out of the, the role of being a Nicodemus who is unwilling to see the light? And yeah. Both of us are saying that in order to get there, you got to go into the dark. Well, yeah. And I mean, as we'll talk about more is that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, right? Mm -hmm. So he, he, he never fully is able to make that move toward, toward the, the daytime. And I think that's really a powerful image in this story is he wants to, he wants to. Well, he will show up again in the mirror. He will yeah. show up in the yeah. crucifixion stories, but that is still yeah. open to tons of speculation about what does that mean. Uh, we don't re- sure. we don't really know, yeah. but we'll get there when, when we get there. I just think yeah. that what we're finding out is that we're probably going to have to spend three weeks on the Nicodemus story, and this coming Sunday will be the second time. 
Here we go. All right, stay on the tightrope. Tightrope. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I want to honor your time. I think you gotta go. I do, and uh, I will see you Sunday. All right. Okay. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.